let me first check whether you'll be able to hear me okay in back. Can you hear okay in back? It's a great pleasure for me always to be back in San Francisco, which I consider, which for me is the most beautiful American city, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I don't know how many of you here know from Franz Schubert's last song cycle that he completed shortly before his death, Schwanengesang. There's a wonderful song, mysterious song in there called Die Stadt, in which Schubert, with the music, describes the towers of a city rising through the mist. And I think of that song every time I cross the Bay Bridge and see San Francisco emerging in the distance. And it's also a city with fond memories for me because my parents um, spent 20 of the last 30 years of their lives here, and I think their happiest years in San Francisco. So I'm very happy to be back here. People often ask me, um, why is it that I chose to write a book on the subject of collapses of societies? And the answer is simple. It was the most fascinating and important and central subject that I could think of to write about after finishing Guns, Germs, and Steel. It appears that the public also finds this subject of collapse fascinating, too, because as soon as the book was released in January, within three days it was on top of the bestseller list. Now, an author likes to believe that if a book sells well, it's because of that author's beautiful writing and great book. But since my book sold well even before anybody could have read it, it was clear that it had nothing to do with my beautiful writing, but simply uh, that people recognize the raw nerve that this subject of collapse touches, and they want to understand it. The book originated as an account of romantic mysteries, past societies that collapsed, leaving behind as abandoned monuments the remains of cities now covered up by jungle or cities in the desert. As a teenager, I, like most of you here, was fascinated by the abandoned statues of Easter Island, the Maya cities, the ruined cities of the Fertile Crescent. And we all ask ourselves, why on earth did people build cities in an area where nobody is trying to make an urban living today? And why having built a city in the Yucatan jungle or in the Four Corners region of the U.S. Southwest, why having built a city there did they then abandon the city? And so my book contains chapters on some of these famous romantic mysteries, the collapse of Easter Island society that I'll tell you something about, the collapse of Pitcairn Island society, Pitcairn Island famous as the uninhabited island to which the bounty mutineers fled, but when the bounty mutineers landed on Pitcairn in 1790, they discovered their temples and platforms and statues of a Polynesian settlement that had vanished. Why did the first settlement of Pitcairn Island die out completely, leaving behind their temples on this remote island. There's also a chapter on the quintessential romantic mystery collapse, the Maya civilization of Guatemala and Mexico and Honduras, the most advanced Native American society of the New World before Columbus, 
with writing and with great art and architecture that collapsed around 800 to not AD 900, leaving behind cities covered up with jungle that are favorite tourist destinations today. There's also a chapter on the Anasazi collapse, the one closest for Californians in the Four Corners region. The Anasazi built the tallest skyscrapers in the United States until the skyscrapers of the Chicago Loop with reinforced steel and concrete in the 1870s. Anasazi skyscrapers went up to six stories, and this in an area of desert, feeding themselves by agriculture in an area where nobody makes a living by agriculture today. Why did the Anasazi build cities in the desert, and why, having done so, did they abandon them? And then, if you are starting to wonder whether collapses of civilizations are things that befall only those remote, exotic, backwards people like Polynesians and Native Americans, da, da, da. it can also happen to Europeans. And so there are, the longest section of my book is on a society of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Christian, literate Europeans writing Latin and Norse, Norwegians who went out to Greenland in AD 984 and built up a farming society with sheep, cows, and goats, built a great stone cathedral and stone churches, and carried on for nearly 500 years, longer than the longevity so far of European settlement of North America, only to end up all dead. Just showing that collapse is also something that can befall Europeans, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Europeans. It's not just a problem for Polynesians and so-called native peoples. My first plan of the book, and I still have the sketch, was a book of 18 chapters on 18 collapses. And I soon realized, God, that's boring and depressing to have a book of 18 chapters on 18 collapses. And in addition, it misses a big point, which is that it's not the case that all past societies collapsed. There are lots of past societies that carried on for thousands or tens of thousands of years without any signs of collapse. And so we have an intellectual problem to be explained. Why is it that some societies solved the problems and carried on for a long time, solved the problems that did in other societies? And so my book also contains chapters on some success stories. Iceland, Japan, the New Guinea Highlanders, the Tikopia Islanders, who've maintained complex societies for thousands or even tens of thousands of years. And finally, I realized that it wasn't enough to write a book about past societies because today we are facing the same problems that did in so many past societies, plus some new problems. And so half the book is also about the difficulties facing modern societies. So there's a chapter on the American state of Montana, from which I came back two weeks ago, the state in which my wife and kids and I um, spend a summer vacation each year. Montana, seemingly the most pristine and underpopulated state of the lower 48, the most environmentally intact state of the richest country in the world, the last society you would expect to see discussed in a book on collapse, and yet when you scratch the surface in Montana, you find the whole panoply of problems, problems of forests and fisheries and water and soil and toxic waste and global warming, et cetera, the whole panoply of problems that have dragged down societies in the past and threatened other societies today. 
There's also a chapter on the African country of Rwanda, which in 1994 solved, in quotes, its problems of the environment and overpopulation in a grisly fashion when six million Rwandans killed nearly one million Rwandans and drove another two million into exile, the worst-case scenario of Thomas Malthus. There's a chapter on the island of Hispaniola, which is like a controlled laboratory experiment. In a laboratory, a chemist would take two identical test tubes and then add a dye to one and so see the effect of the dye. In history, we would love to do that. We don't get the chance to do it, but there are some natural experiments approximating that. The island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean um, is divided into two countries. In the west, Haiti. In the east, the Dominican Republic, sharing the same island. And to fly in a plane over the border from separating Hispaniola to the Dominican Republic is dramatic because as you fly across the border, to the west of you, it's brown, and to the east of you, it's green in the Dominican Republic. Or if you stand on the border, you turn this way, and you see brown fields with no trees, that's Haiti. And you turn this way, and you see green forest, pine forest, that's the Dominican Republic. Haiti today is the saddest incipient failure in the New World, the poorest country in the New World, one of the poorest in the world, 99% deforested with virtually collapsed government. And on the same island, just across the border, the Dominican Republic, yes, a third, struggling third world country, but six times richer than Haiti, with the most comprehensive national park system in the New World, with about one third of its land still covered by forests as close as you can get to a controlled experiment. There's also a chapter on China, the world's most populous nation, whose environmental and population problems automatically affect more people than do the problems of any other country, just because there are more Chinese than any other people. But also China is so big, and it's got such a huge and growing economy that the problems of China automatically become the problems of the rest of the world because China is dumping its gases and wastes into the same atmosphere and oceans shared with the rest of the world. And finally, there's a chapter on Australia, the first world society that faces the most severe environmental problems, but that is also today considering the most drastic solutions to its environmental problems. As I looked at society after society, I arrived at a five-point framework for trying to understand why some societies succeed while other societies fail. In no particular order, one item on my five-point checklist is human environmental impacts. Humans use environmental resources. In some cases, we inadvertently overexploit, overharvest our environmental resources, such as our forests and our fisheries and soils. And as a result, there are societies that have unintentionally destroyed themselves by depleting the environmental resources on which they depended. That's one factor on my checklist. A second factor on my checklist to try to understand success or failure, collapse or non-collapse, is climate change. Today, climate change to us means climate change caused by humans, global warming. But in the past, the climate has frequently changed for reasons unrelated to humans. In the past, the climate 
has sometimes gotten colder, gotten warmer, gotten wetter, gotten drier. And those climate changes have effects on human societies, particularly farming societies, so that a society that is managing to deal with its environmental problems as long as the climate is in its favor may collapse when the climate turns against the society, for example, when it gets colder or drier. Third item on my checklist, along with human environmental impacts and climate change, is enemies. Most societies have neighbors, with some of which they're intermittently at war. And if a society gets weakened for any reason, including its own environmental problems or political or economic problems, when a society gets weakened, that's the occasion when the enemies are likely to take advantage and walk in on the weakened society, which means that in continental environments, it's regularly difficult to decide whether the primary cause of a collapse is a military defeat or whether the primary cause was economic, environmental, political problems that weakened a society to the point where the enemies then gave the final blow. And the classic example of that debate is the fall of the Western Roman Empire. There's been a standing, unresolved argument. We all know that Rome, the Western Roman Empire, quotes, fell in, I think, AD 476, when a Germanic chieftain deposed the last native Roman emperor. But the Romans had been fighting against those barbarians on their borders for hundreds of years, and they'd been fighting them off successfully. Why is it that after centuries of victories for Rome, the barbarians finally prevailed? Was the real cause of the fall of the Western Roman Empire something about the barbarians, they, that they got more numerous or developed more potent military technology? Or was it instead that Rome got weakened by its own environmental, economic, military, political problems, and a weakened Rome then received the final blow from the barbarians, in which case the fundamental cause of the Roman collapse was Rome's own problems, the barbarians were just an epiphenomenon, the last blow. That question is still debated among historians. Next, the last factor in my checklist involves relations not just with enemies, but with friends, with friendly trade partners. The great majority of societies receives some essential imports from friendly trade partners. And that means that a society that is managing its own environment perfectly adequately may nevertheless collapse if a trade partner damages its environment to the point of collapsing so that it can no longer send the essential imports to the first society. That's a problem familiar to us Americans, at least to any of you old enough to remember the 1973-74 Gulf oil crisis when the United States economy um, received a severe threat, not because we were acutely messing up our own environment, but because we depended for essential imports, in this case oil, on some environmentally and politically fragile countries. And then finally, the last item on my checklist is a society's responses. Whatever problems a society faces, one has to ask how a society responds. Does it perceive and address and solve the problems, yes or no? What are the economic, political, social, and cultural facets of a society that either allow it to meet its problems or that cause it to fail to meet them? Well, this is all somewhat abstract, so let me give you a concrete example uh, the collapse of the Polynesian society on Easter Island that built the great stone statues. How many of you here has, have been to Easter Island? Could you raise your hand? Okay. Wonderful place. How many of you have seen pictures or National Geographic's 
all, all of us have. So Easter Island, it's famous as the most remote habitable scrap of land in the world, an island just 50 square miles, 2,300 miles west of the coast of Chile, and 1,300 miles east of the nearest inhabited Polynesian island. And it's famous for those gigantic stone statues that sent two of you and me to Easter Island and the rest of you to see the pictures. Stone statues weighing up to 80 tons and up to 33 feet high that were carved and somehow dragged and transported up to 12 miles and then erected into a vertical position on platforms against the sea. All this done by people without metal tools, without draft animals, without wheels, without any power other than their own muscle power. How did they do it? So the collapse of Easter Island society and how they erected and then how they tore down their own statues. Because when Europeans arrived, here comes a Thomas Mann-like sentence where I've lost memory of my main verb. When Europeans arrived in East, on Easter Island in the year 1722, this was the Dutch navigator Jacob Roggeveen, Easter Island looked like the last island where you would expect a great civilization erecting gigantic statues because Roggeveen noted there were no trees on the island. And yet, without machines or wheels, surely to erect those statues and to drag them 12 miles, the islanders needed wood, whether to make sleds or rollers or levers, and surely they needed also wood um, to make rope of natural fiber. But here's an island without any trees. No way to get wood for transport or for rope. There was no way that they could erect the statues. And in fact, the islanders were in the process of dragging down, tearing down, breaking the statues that their ancestors had erected at such enormous effort, with the result that in 1843, the last of the hundreds of statues was torn down and broken by the islanders themselves. So romantic mystery. Why did the Easter Islands erect these great statues, and why, having erected them, did they tear them all down and break them? The answer to that romantic mystery has emerged from archaeological studies of the last 20 years, which show that when Easter was first settled by Europeans, it was not the barren, treeless wasteland that we see today, but it was instead covered by a subtropical forest that included the world's biggest palm tree, now extinct. And so the, the Polynesian settlers of Easter Island proceeded to chop down trees for the same reason that we do today and that other peoples do. They chopped down trees for clearing land for agriculture, and for timber for construction, and for fuel for firewood, and also to make canoes with which to go out to the ocean to harpoon, tuna, and dolphin that were their main sources of meat and protein. And the Easter Islanders continued chopping down trees until around the year 1680, they chopped down the last tree on the island, at which point they were now out of wood to make the sleds and the levers and to have the rope with which they dragged and transported and erected the giant statues. So from 1680, there were no more statues erected. But without any wood, the islanders could no longer build canoes, so they couldn't go out to sea to harpoon, tuna, and dolphin. And that meant that for protein, for meat, they turned to the only large animal on the island, namely Homo sapiens. Easter Island society collapsed in a civil war between the 12 clans uh, that whenever a clan triumphed over another clan, the victorious clan would tear down and break the statues of the defeated clan. And in this epidemic of cannibalism and civil warfare, 
from those days handed down on Easter Island as the oral memory of the worst insult that an Easter Islander could shriek at another Easter Islander in those days if you wanted to make someone else really furious. What you said to them to drive them out of their mind with rage is, the flesh of your mother sticks between my teeth. So that's the end of Easter Island society, and a collapse, a, a stark collapse. The population of Easter Island decreased by something like 90%, and the formerly politically and culturally unified island collapsed in this epidemic of civil war. Um, of all the prehistoric collapses that I've talked about, I find that the collapse of Easter Island is the one that grabs people most because the, the metaphor is so obvious. Easter Island isolated in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. When Easter society collapsed, there was no one else to whom the islanders could turn for help, nowhere else that they could flee. And people see the metaphor of the planet. If we on Earth today mess up our own planet, there's no galaxy to which we can turn for help and no other galaxy out there to which we can flee. When I've, in the last couple of years, I've been teaching a course on the material of my book to my UCLA undergraduates, they recognized the significance of a problem that had escaped me. Namely, how on earth did the people do these self-destructive things like cutting down all their trees? And in particular, my UCLA students have asked me, what do you think the islander who chopped down the last palm tree said as he or she was chopping down the last palm tree? My UCLA students have made a number of suggestions for what they said when they were cutting down the last palm tree. Maybe the person who did it said, never fear, technology will solve our problems by finding a substitute for wood. <laughs> or perhaps that person chopping down the last tree said, this is my private property, this tree is mine, private property rights, respect them, I can do with it whatever I please, keep the big government of the chiefs off my back. Or, my UCLA student suggested, maybe the person who chopped down the last tree said, the fears of you environmentalists are exaggerated. You don't know what's going on in some other part of the island. Perhaps there are still trees out there. A ban on logging would be premature. We need more research. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I received an email from someone who said, I know what the islander who cut down the last tree said as he was doing it. He said, never fear, have faith, God will somehow provide for us. <laughs> so that's the collapse of Easter Island society. But my book is not a depressing book about collapses, because just collapses, because it's also an account of societies that succeeded, a society that succeeded in solving the same problems of deforestation that did in the Easter Islanders and the Maya and the Anasazi was Japan of the Tokugawa era. Japan in the 1500s and 1600s came to the end of a civil war, was unified under the so-called Tokugawa shoguns, and paradoxically, the peace and prosperity of the end of the Japanese civil war plunged Japan into an environmental crisis as there was a population explosion, construction in wood, the shoguns and the nobles building big castles made of wood, people building cities of wooden buildings, which tended to burn down, of course, and then rebuilding the cities in wood. And in the course of the 1600s, it became clear that the Japanese archipelago was getting progressively deforested, and the shogun himself was having to 
import timber from the far northern island of Japan, Hokkaido. But fortunately, the, the shoguns and the Japanese nobles and the Japanese people recognized the problem of deforestation and they solved it by a combination of negative and positive measures. The negative measures included, in fact, wood rationing, restricting the uses to which wood could be put so as to reduce wood consumption, and the positive measures included increasing wood production by developing, independently of Germany, the world's first scientific tree production. The Japanese embarked on massive tree plantations to increase wood output. And the result was that by the time of 1853, Commodore Perry, and then the Meiji Restoration, Japan was self-sufficient in wood. And today, Japan is the first world country covered most extensively with forests, 74% forested. So there is, at least as of 1853, some of you will recognize why Japan cannot in that respect, be considered a success after 53, but until 1853, a success story of managing forests. In this area, which poses issues of long-term thinking, how do you manage a society so that it will last for hundreds or thousands of years? There were surprises. There have been surprises for me. And perhaps the biggest set of surprises has to do with that question that my UCLA students have kept asking me. How on earth do people end up doing these dumb things? Um, why do they practice such short-term thinking? Why don't they at least foresee a decade ahead? Um, why do people do something so obviously dumb as to chop down all their trees, or to kill off all their big animals, or to run out of fresh water? That turns out to be an unexpectedly complicated question. There are not simple reasons why people make bad decisions. We know that in our individual lives, we make bad decisions sometimes. Sometimes we marry the wrong person, or we invest in the wrong investment, or we make a poor choice of career. And there are complicated reasons why we make these poor choices. Similarly for human groups. Human groups sometimes make bad decisions for the same reasons that individuals do, but with groups, there are additional reasons for failures of decision-making, problems intrinsic in group dynamics. Sometimes, as the first step towards making or failing to make a good decision, it helps if you can anticipate a problem before it arrives. But a first reason for cause for failure is a society that or an individual that fails to anticipate the problem before the problem appears, and so misses the chance to abort the problem. As society may fail to anticipate a problem because it reasons by false analogy or because there's been no precedent for the problem in the society's experience. Example, global warming today. Why on earth did we not 30 years ago recognize that global warming was coming on? Why didn't we anticipate the problem of global warming? It's simple. There had never in human history been so many people putting out so many much greenhouse gas as to be able to heat up the temperature of the whole globe. It was unprecedented, unimaginable. Instead, until 30 years ago, people were concerned about global cooling rather than global warming. So we did not anticipate the problem of global warming. It's not that we were stupid. It was un unanticipated, unprecedented. A second reason why societies may fail to solve problems is that even after they fail to anticipate and the problem arrives, 
people may fail to perceive a problem that is there around them. Some problems develop in literally an imperceptible fashion, develop slowly. Another, an example is, again, global warming. Why is it that it took us now 30 years to recognize the reality of global warming? Why didn't we see after seven years that the world was starting to cook? And the reason is, is simple. Um, it's that global warming began literally imperceptibly. It was not the case that in 1970, world average temperature was this, in 1971, a degree warmer, 1972, two degrees warmer, one degree warmer every year. If that had been the case, then after seven years, the world would have been seven degrees warmer, it would have been clear. But no, you know that climate doesn't behave that way. Climate fluctuates. There's a warmer year, and then a cold year, and then a couple of cold years, and then another warm year, a couple of warm summers, then some cold years, warm, cold. Climate fluctuates. And it took 30 years before every knowledgeable scientist and climatologist concerned with these issues of climate um, was able to, uh, were able to agree that behind this noisy fluctuating signal, there really was a long-term trend of global warming. Uh, that's why we didn't see it after seven years. The beginnings of global warming were literally imperceptible. And that's also why um, it took 30 years before the heads of state of every government on Earth, except for the head of state of Australia and one other country, have recognized the <laughs> importance of global warming. A third reason why a society may fail to solve a problem, if it hasn't anticipated it or hasn't perceived it, is that the society may even not try to solve a problem that it recognizes. And that's especially puzzling. How on earth would a society or an individual not try to solve a problem that you recognize? But there are lots of reasons, including conflicts of interest. In many cases, to perpetuate the problem is in the interests of some individuals or some group within the society. And if that group gets big certain benefits, and if everybody else suffers disadvantages, but those disadvantages are more diffuse and less certain, then there's a strong lobby to perpetuate the problem. That again is the case with global warming. Perpetuating global warming by continuing to burn greenhouse gases is in the interest of some elements of our society. Um, for example, some autom automobile manufacturers and oil companies, but it's not the case that all oil companies uh, neglect the importance of the issue of global warming. A couple of them unfortunately continue to do so, and a couple are well attuned to the issue. So conflicts of interest sometimes result in people not addressing problems that are going to do them in. There are obviously some lessons of history, lessons of these past collapses, um, relevant to our present situation today. The most transparent lesson is to take environmental problems seriously. There are lots of past societies with only 10,000 people, the Easter Islanders, equipped with just stone tools or wooden, wooden tools. And yet, those past societies managed to, eventually, to destroy their environments and to do themselves in. If past societies with a few people and their relatively weak technology were capable of destroying themselves, you better believe that we are doing it today much more rapidly. That's a transparent conclusion. But there were also some deeper conclusions um, that 
emerged for me only in the last stages of working on my book, and in fact, they've been growing on me since then. These really are problems of long-term thinking. What are the long-term long features of a society that distinguish in the long run the successes and the failures? And here I recognize, I think, two groups of factors relevant to long-now thinking. One has to do with the role of the elite in a society. Societies in which the elite are capable of insulating themselves from the consequences of their actions. Those are societies that are more likely to do themselves in by failing to solve their problems because the elite, insulated from the consequences of their actions, um, are cut off from the problems that they're creating and lack the motivation to solve them. Example, the Maya, Maya civilization, of the Yucatan, Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, collapsed in the 800s and 900s. Why, as a result, especially deforestation, soil erosion? Why on earth did the Maya kings not just look out the windows of their palaces and see the forest gone from the hillsides and the soil eroding down from the hillsides, covering up the buildings down in the valley bottoms up to a depth of quite a few feet? Why did the Maya kings see it? And sure, they saw it, but they were insulated from the consequences of deforestation, soil erosion, because the Maya kings were living basically by taxing the commoners. The Maya kings were living luxuriously at the expense of the commoners. They did not suffer the consequences of deforestation and soil erosion until it was too late, even as the commoners were beginning to get malnourished and starved, until it was too late and the commoners rose in revolt and overthrew the kings and burnt the palaces of the kings. The Maya kings had insulated themselves from the consequences of their actions and as a result were not motivated to solve their problems. Whereas there are other societies, Tokugawa, Japan, the shogun, suffered the consequences of deforestation just as did everybody else in Japan. And so the shogun was motivated to solve Japan's forestry problems. I must say that one of the things that concerns me increasingly today in the United States is this phenomenon of insulation of the elite, which has been growing conspicuously within the last decade, the degree to which elite Americans, wealthy Americans, Americans in a position of political power, are doing things to ensure that they are walled off from the consequences of their actions, um, and so are not motivated to solve the broader problems of society, the Enron phenomenon. In Southern California, it takes the, phenomenon, takes the form of the so-called gated community that's been proliferating in Southern California in the last decade that I've been living there. In the gated community, um, affluent people live explicitly behind gates, isolated from society's broader problems, and so they're not motivated to solve the problems of municipal water supply because they drink bottled water. They're not motivated to solve the problems of the police force, public police force, because they've got private security guards. They're not motivated to solve the problems of the public schools because their kids go to private schools. They're not motivated to solve the issues of social security because they will retire on private pensions. And they're also not motivated to solve the problems of national medical insurance or the lack thereof, again, because they, de they depend upon private health insurance. And this phenomenon in the United States is growing, the insulation of powerful Americans, the decision makers from the rest of society. In the past, that's been a blueprint for trouble. It's also a phenomenon not only within the United States, but also between 
first world countries and the rest of the world. The first world is increasingly behaving like a gated community towards the rest of the world. That's to say, adopting the attitude that we in the first world can continue to consume, even though we see the messes that are being caused out there in the third world, even though we see the increasing number of third world countries um, that are suffering from problems of resource shortage and from overpopulation. And at least for a while, we in the first world can get away with insulating ourselves from the world's problems, just as the Maya kings for a while insulated themselves from the world's problems. But September 11, 2001 was or should have been a wake-up call to Americans that in the long run, long now thinking, the United States and Japan and Australia and Europe, the first world, is not no longer going to be able to insulate itself from the problems of the third world. So that's one of the deep lessons. And I think the other deep lesson that I was realizing only towards the end of my work and that has been growing on me in the time since I finished my book has to do with the question of core values. Again, why do some societies succeed in solving their problems and others while others are failing? Part of the reason has to do with a willingness to reappraise core values. Every society has its core values that it, it holds dear. In the United States, the va values of freedom and of aspiration and opportunities for everybody. But every society has its core values. And yet conditions change. And when conditions change, the core values that may have served the society well in the past may no longer be serving the society well at, a, at present. And so a society faces the issue of whether to change core values. It's agonizing to jettison the values that have served you well in the past. It may be essential to carrying on. A society that does not, is unwilling to change its core values when conditions change, may destroy itself by behaving inappropriately. The Greenland Norse, for example, maintained their society for 450 years, remote from Europe, by their core value of their identity as European Christians. And that enabled them to survive as the most remote outpost of Europe from AD 984 until 1450. And that was fine until sea ice began to cut off trade with Norway and until the Inuit, the Eskimos, arrived in Greenland. The Norwegians in Greenland were racist Christians who despised the Inuit. And as long as climate and the environment was in their favor, they could get away with it. But when the climate turned against them, the fact was that these pagan Inuit had a much more successful subsistence economy than did the Norse. The Norse clung to their identity as Christians, refused to learn from the Inuit, and as a result, ended up all dead by clinging to the values, the core values, that had given them success for 450 years. That, again, is an issue today. Uh, there are societies today that have been willing to reappraise their core values. I was living in Europe in the late 50s and early 60s when Europeans were undergoing an agonizing appraisal, reappraising their core value of the nation state. Europeans had regarded themselves for centuries as citizens of the nation state and it had been the basis for Europe's prosperity but also in the 20th century, it had become the basis for two awful world wars. And after the Second World War, Europeans began saying our identity as 
nationalistic citizens of Germany or France, served us well in the past, and it ruined us in the 20th century, and we can't afford another such war. So we have to change our core values and start considering ourselves Europeans. And there was the, the agonizing reappraisal that I saw going on, particularly in Britain in the late 1950s, and it's still going on today in, in Europe with the, the turn down of the EU constitution um, in, in um, France and the Netherlands, but that's not the last word. The fact is that Europeans have been able to substantially reappraise their core values, um, and as a result, have been making a transition that promises Europe power and economic strength that would not have had otherwise. Again, this is something that concerns me in the United States today. America has had held to core values that in the past, since 1776, have been the source of our identity and strength and served us well in the past, but are no longer serving us well. The two prime core values that are up for reappraisal in the United States today with which we are struggling are our traditional value of isolationism and consumerism. For a long time, the United States was isolationist. George Washington, in his farewell address, taught us to stay clear of entangling alliances, to be isolationist. And it was good advice that George Washington gave us as long as the Atlantic Pacific Oceans, in fact, could shield us from any country strong enough to be a threat to us. After the First World War, when we did get involved in Europe, we pulled back into our traditional isolationism, we could get away with it. But nowadays, particularly since September 11, 2001, it's clear that isolationism doesn't work. It doesn't solve long-term problems. It can solve short-term problems because there are too many countries waiting to blow up. And so Americans are starting to go through the painful reappraisal of getting involved in the long-term, long-now thinking, getting involved in the long-term with countries overseas, the opposite of our strength of isolation throughout our history. The other American value that is up for reappraisal now is a value of consumerism. The fact is that the United States is the richest country in the world. We've consumed more than any other country, and our ideal of consumerism made sense as long as there were few, relatively few Americans in a rich environment. And today, our consumerism that made us the richest country in the world no longer makes sense because the world is running out of resources and the world, including the United States, is increasing in number of people. So we are starting to reappraise our consumerism that was a source of our strength in the past and will ruin us in the future if we cling to it. But it's going to be a painful reappraisal, as any of you who watches Super Bowl halftime ads knows. Well, one, finally, one might, one might object, well, to draw lessons from the past for the present, that's not fair because there are big differences from the past and present. You can't just extrapolate directly from the past to the present. Yes, that's true. There are differences between the past and present, and you have to take account of those differences if you want to be able to learn from the past, if you want to be able to draw lessons from history. You have to recognize differences between the past and present. Some of those differences make our present situation worse, more dangerous. For example, I mentioned that in the past, 
societies consist of relatively few people with weak technology, but today there are six and a half billion of us with metal tools and bulldozers and nuclear power, not 10,000 Easter Islanders with stone tools. We're hammering away at our environment with much more power and much faster than any past society. That makes our present situation more dangerous than the situation of past societies. Another difference between the past and present is that in the past, societies could collapse one by one. When Easter Island collapsed, Easter Island society collapsed, nobody else in the world knew about it. Nobody was affected by it. And similarly, when the Maya collapsed, it had some reverberations maybe in the Valley of Mexico, but certainly none in the southeastern United States or in the Andes, and none at all in Europe. Nobody knew about it. Nobody was affected by the Maya collapse. But today, thanks to globalization, every society potentially can affect any other society. And that means that the risk we face today is not the risk of an isolated collapse, that's now impossible, but of a global collapse. One knows that from recent history. If 20 years ago you would ask some congressperson with no interest in the environment and concern only with global security issues uh, to name the countries in the world of most complete irrelevance to the geopolitical interests of the United States because they were so remote and so poor, people, in fact, went through this exercise. And on the 1986 list of the countries most irrelevant to American interests were, of course, Somalia, and Afghanistan, and except for its oil, Iraq. But because of globalization, all three of those countries have seen interventions of American troops. The American government has seen fit to send troops to these remote poor countries, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Because of globalization, what happens anywhere, even in a country like Somalia, affects the interests of the first world today. There are waves of immigration, emigration that are unstoppable. And the first world draws resources from the rest of the world. The first world attracts terrorists and emergent diseases from the rest of the world. So the risk that we face today is not of an Easter Island-like collapse in isolation, but of a global collapse. Those two things could make one pessimistic. But people often ask me, Jared, after all this, are you a pessimist or an optimist? And maybe after what I've told you, you'll say, well, he must be a pessimist. But the fact is that despite all this, I'm a cautious optimist. And the reason that I'm a cautious optimist, and I think that things could turn out OK, is the great advantage that we enjoy over all past societies. Namely, we are the only society in world history that is capable of learning from the difficulties being faced by societies remote from us in space. So in the morning, you turn on your TV sets and you see what's happening today in Iraq or Rwanda or Nepal. You can learn from these remote countries. But when the Easter Islanders were chopping down their last tree in 1680, the Easter Islanders didn't have TV sets and they had no way of knowing that Japan in 1680 was in the process of solving its forestry problems, while Haiti in the 1680s was getting launched on creating forestry problems. So we have that unique advantage. And the related unique advantage we have is that we are the first society in world history with the capable capability of learning from the past, because we've got archaeologists and historians to tell us about the successes of the Tikopians and the New Guinea Highlanders and the failures of the Maya and the Anasazi and the Easter Islanders and the Pitcairn Islanders. Again, when the Easter Islanders chopped, were chopped, getting ready to chop down that last tree in 1680, the Easter Islanders didn't have archaeologists or 
historians uh, to tell them that 800 years previously, Maya civilization had collapsed for the exact same reason that Easter Island society was now on the verge of collapsing, or that the Anasazi had collapsed just 500 years earlier. So we, are, we have this great advantage. We are the first society in world history with the potential for learning from societies remote from us in space and remote from us in time. And my hope, for the sake of the generation of my 18-year-old twin sons and our children, my hope is that we will choose to make use of that advantage learn from the past and become one of the success stories rather than one of the failures. Thank you. Uh, quite a swarm of questions here. By the way, if you're not asking a question and somebody near you looks like they want one of these blank cards, go ahead and hand it. <laughs> Uh, if you want one of these blank cards, go ahead and beg around the people around you to see if you can get something. And if that doesn't work, tear a leaf out of the back of his book or something. Um, I'll start with your book. This is a question from Tom. It's going to be the one, uh, what do people most often misunderstand about your work? Where's Tom? Right over here. What do people most often misunderstand about my work? My sense has been that the people who misunderstand my work are those who went into it with a preconceived view and were not receptive to seeing what's happened in history. Um, there have been a couple of critical reviews by well-known people whose views are well-known. It was to be expected that Greg Easterbrook um, would write a negative review in the New York Times. In fact, I was pleasantly surprised that he voted one quarter as a review to saying what a good book this was before he then said that it was wrong, because this is, this is a person who has made a career out of disparaging the importance of environmental problems. Um, this is actually a question for me. Uh, you, wrote, you finished the book, as I recall, almost a year ago now. Uh, they get them to print faster now. That's kind of interesting in its own right. But you must have seen and noticed some things both in the world and your students and in the course of making this uh, television series that you would have put in the book if you'd known it a year ago. Could you run by any of those things? Sure. There are things that I would put in the book now if I were, if I were finishing off the book now. Um, I came back a month ago from... Australia, where I was doing a publicity tour for the release of the Australian edition of the book. And Australia, at the time that I was there, um, was and still is in the most serious drought in Australian history. Um, a major Australian city with a population of more than 100,000 was within a few months of having to bring water in by truck. And Sydney, Australia's biggest city with a population of 4.5 million, has its reservoirs at 38% capacity and dropping, dropping. But Sydney doesn't have any, any aquifer beneath it, and it doesn't have desalinization plants. It's going to be quite spectacular if a city of 4.5 million, at the rate that Sydney is going now, it's estimated that Sydney has between one year and 20 months to solve its water problems, that's going to be spectacular if a city of four and a half million fails to solve its water problem. I would put that in my book. And are you an, an optimist on that one? I'm a cautious optimist in that <laughs> Australians take their environmental problems more seriously than we do or Japanese for the simple reason that they've got the most fragile environment and they know it. 
There's going to be a pair of related questions. They're kind of long, but they're, they're, they're worthy and long. One's from uh, Bob Kopuk and the other from Sam Borgeson. Where are you guys? One there, one over here. Uh, Bob Kopuk asks, don't democracies have a disadvantage? If a necessary resource, for example, forests, may be destroyed for jobs and profit, if the resource is saved once, won't the issue arise again later over and over? But one wrong decision will doom the resource in the society. And Sam Borgeson uh, puts a little more uh, generically, do you see any connections between types of government and response to serious societal problems? For example, in other words, is it possible that our own system is poorly equipped to deal with our own long-term problems? That's a very interesting question. It's a good question, the general question about whether democracies or dictatorships or centrally guided societies um, are better equipped to solve these difficult environmental problems. One can make a, a priori arguments such as the one outlined in your question. There are a priori, a priori reasons why you might expect democracies to be less successful, more successful, dictatorships, etc. Surveying democracies and dictatorships, I do not see an average difference. That's to say there are democracies that have made messes and there are democracies that have courageously solved their problems. There are dictatorships that have made messes and dictatorships that have solved their problems. Um, among dictatorships, for example, Tokugawa Japan was a dictatorship. Um, Indonesia is a dictatorship and at least for some time in the Suharto area, era, Indonesia had a minister of the environment, Emil Salem, who had the ear of President Suharto, and who in this country, without an indigenous grassroots movement, instituted a large-scale national park system. Um, so dictatorships can do some good things. They can also do some dreadful things. Duvalier, the dictator of Haiti, did some, made some dreadful contributions towards deforestation. And again, in democracies, um, the United States, democ American democracy. But just a minute now. The, the, the guy who ran uh, Sandra Domingo, which is your wonderful yep. example against Haiti, was not exactly a glowing Democrat. No, no. Trujillo, well, Trujillo the guy who ran, ran the Dominican Republic, um, was, is usually considered the most, most evil dictator in the history of the New World. And yet, so, and he did lots of absolutely awful things. Paradoxically, his environmental policies worked out better, much better for the DR than did Duvalier's for Haiti for the selfish reason that Trujillo wanted to enrich himself by, main, by maintaining the pine forest as property for himself, and so he prevented other people from chopping down the pine forest. There's an example of an utterly despicable person doing something that, doing at least one thing that had some beneficial side effects. And among democracies, the United States leaves some things to be desired in a, a, a democracy's environmental policies today. But there are other democracies, notably Sweden, the Netherlands, Norway, Iceland, especially Iceland and Australia, um, that are doing some rather bold imagined things for the environment. So long-winded way of saying, on the average, I would say that dictatorships lurch more from very bad to very good than do democracies, but on the average, there are dumb and bright dictators just as there are dumb and bright presidents. <laughs> Related of other countries. And you know, you're always going to look at biogeographical situations. And so Japan is an island. Uh, Iceland is an island. Now Greenland is also an island, but a peculiar, in a sense, a colonized island, whereas it feels to me like Iceland was more its own complete thing, and they're doing their own personal genome of the entire 
place and taking a very seriously green approach to things. Is that partly because they're an island as well as a very old democracy? I think there are differences. That's an interesting point about Japan and Iceland because, yes, they are islands, but also they represent opposite extremes of islands. Iceland is environmentally one of the most fragile islands. Iceland ended up virtually totally deforested and lost half of its topsoil. But in that case, the Icelanders learned their lesson, and they now have a whole government department devoted to reforesting Iceland. And at the opposite extreme of Japan, Japan's success in reforesting itself is partly because of policy, but also that Japan had an easier job. Japan is the first world country with the highest rainfall and most fertile soils. So trees grow rapidly, regrow rapidly in Japan. The Japanese had an easier problem as well as successful politics. It occurs to me that both Japan and Iceland also have uh, frames of reference of long-term thinking. In Iceland, yeah. a great deal of knowledge about their own history and concern with it. Part of their genetic interest is in their own genealogy. And in Japan, you have the traditions of Shinto uh, expressed in the Issei Shrine and other of these things which really uh, reach over centuries quite comfortably. And you know, the question here is, does great regard for ancestors play into this at all. That's a, that's a very good point, and I think it ties in in the following additional way, that if you're on an island that has been self-contained for a long time, as has Iceland and Japan, you get used to the fact that you are going to have to manage with your own resources. And that's not the case in a society with borders, where if you make a mess, you at least have the strategy of going and grabbing those resources from the people next door. So I think it's no accident that Japan, at least for some time, and Iceland today, um, has worked hard at managing its environment and being self-contained. Keeps the consequences close to home. Yeah. Here's a question from Mark Lavoie, professor at Stanford. Where are you? Waving back there. Uh, most of the societies, you spoke to this a little bit, but there's a, a uh, clinker at the end of it. Most of the societies whose collapse you describe are isolated at some level. How much does Thomas Friedman's flat world prevent Jared Diamond's collapse in the long run? Parentheses, yeah. unless the entire planet collapses. Yeah. It's true that the illustrative examples that I discuss in my book um, are drawn disproportionately, but not solely from isolated societies. Because, you know, and that's for illustrative reasons. In isolated societies, things tend to happen faster, and they're cleaner, and there are fewer confounding influences of neighbors. But also in my book, there's a whole chapter on the Maya, who are the most advanced society of the New World in the most populous embedded part of the New World before Columbus, Mesoamerica. And there are other continental embedded societies that have collapsed, which I did not discuss, Again, for illustrative reasons, if I had done the 18 chapters of 18 collapses, you would have had a chapter on the Harappan collapse of the Indus Valley civilization, and there would have been a chapter on the Khmer collapse of what's now Cambodia, and there would have been a chapter on Great Zimbabwe in Africa, and there would have been a chapter on Cahokia outside St. Louis, and there would have been a chapter on the Fertile Crescent, Arakaran, etc. So uh, the isolated societies are more illustrative, but it's not the case that the societies with neighbors are immune from problems. And what do you think about planetary collapse? Planetary, the risk that we face today, the new risk that we face today, is the risk of a planetary um, collapse. 
Na um, namely, the problems, my worst case scenario, my, the gentle version of my worst case scenario is not, not a nuclear holocaust or an epidemic, but that conditions of Somalia and Rwanda just gradually spread and conditions of Nepal gradually spread and, more, and Haiti gradually spread and more and more countries collapse and, it gets to, and the United States, which is now intervening with 150,000 troops and $250 billion in one country, there are 25 billion countries out there that the United States has to intervene in, and that's my gentle decline scenario. <laughs> that's a glide path to oblivion scenario. Um, so in your view, is globalization part of the current planetary robustness or, or part of its brittleness? Both ways. Yep. Glo more. Globalization can buffer. If you run out of resources, you can get them from somewhere else. Japan today is maintaining its forest cover. How? By globalization, by pillaging the forests of other countries. Our forests, yes. <laughs> but glo globalization can buffer you, but globalization also exposes you as those American troops who went into Somalia and Iraq now. Here's a question from uh, Brendan O'Connor, who says, I'm 22, close to 20, where are you? Way back, thank you. All of your examples of societal collapse have environmental destruction as some sort of cause. What is the situation, I guess, are there examples of purely social or political collapse? Absolutely. Yes, there are examples of purely political, social, or military collapse, uh, while environmental factors have played a role, I think, in the majority of the well-known collapses of past societies. There are cases of collapses without an environmental component. Just two, the collapse of Carthage in 146 BC was purely military conquest by the Romans, and the virtual collapse of Paraguay in the 1800s, the depopulation and political collapse of Paraguay was not because of Paraguay's environmental problems, but because Paraguay made the mistake of fighting a war simultaneously um, against Bolivia and Argentina and Uruguay. Don't forget Uruguay. And that was a big mistake militarily, and it resulted in a collapse of Paraguay. So yes, there are collapses. Oh, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, a recent example. Yes, the Soviet Union made awful environmental messes, uh, but it appears that the, nevertheless, it was not those environmental messes that did in the Soviet Union 15 years ago, but it was the Soviet Union's especially economic and resulting political and military problems. So the answer is yes, there are collapses without um, big environmental component. Uh, okay, here's uh, Bob Kapok again. Wave your hand again. Um, how do you think the New Guinea people will fare a few hundred years after oil runs out and a big die-off occurs? Isn't there a good chance they will be in better shape than our descendants? Yes, of course. <laughs> the New Guineans will be, have a good chance of being in better shape of our, than our descendants because New Guineans have been self-sufficient and cut off from the outside world until very recently. Uh, one of my New Guinea friends um, was on the expedition, was on the party that made the last stone axes in his area in the 1970s, and Peter still knows how to make um, stone axes. Uh, the New Guinea villages in, that I visited last August were still 
self-sufficient, growing all their own food with minimal dependence on anything from the outside world. So yes, if there is a global collapse, New Guineans will be very well positioned to carry on while we Americans who don't know how to light a fire or how to get food except from a supermarket cart will have some difficulties. Uh, this is a question from Rajiv. Time value of money drives most decision-making. Is this one of the prime causes of short-term thinking? What was the first word? The time value of money. Discount. The time, time value of money. Does this drive most? Uh, does this drive? Is this one of the prime causes of short-term thinking? It's a, I don't know that it's a prime, there are so many, there are so many causes of short-term thinking, but, but yes, that is a cause of short-term thinking, uh, particularly among professional economists who, who um, think in terms of what's called discounting. Um, that's to say $1,000 10 years in the future is not as valuable as $1,000 today because you can earn interest for the next 10 years. And economists broaden that argument to say um, that it makes sense, it's perfectly okay to chop down the forests and to, to, to drive into extinction the fisheries today if the money that we earn by deforesting and overfishing gets invested in other stuff such as human capital. This is a, a common fallacy on the part of economists and it reminds me of a book by an economist on whose title page appeared, if I can get it right, the following quote. Um, in a world of finite resources, the only people who believe in the possibility of unlimited growth are idiots and economists. <laughs> Do you identify other um, nailable causes of short-term thinking? Lots of causes of, of short-term thinking. Um, other causes of, of short-term thinking. They include desperation. For example, why is it in the tropical third world that fishermen dynamite the reefs in order to get fish, even though these fishermen know very well the value of the reefs and they know that they're destroying their own livelihood and the potential livelihood for their children because of short-term desperation of getting the food for their children tomorrow? Or why is it that some New Guinea groups sell leases to logging companies to deforest their land, even though they know better than anybody else the products that they get for free from their forests? Again, short-term desperation of needing the cash to buy clothes and food and school books for their children. Those are some of the motives behind short-term thinking. This may be a core values question as well, because it occurs to me when Ryan and I were on Easter Island, we talked to the same archaeologist you did, I think. And uh, he told the story of uh, a lobster fishery dis was discovered around the Easter Island little archipelago there uh, some years ago. It was great because they could you not know, only eat the lobsters but sell them to Chile. So they caught them all and sold them all to Chile and now there aren't any lobsters left. And we sort of asked, you know, come on. <laughs> These guys must know better than anybody not to make that kind of mistake. And his answer was he thought it was in some sense a Polynesian core value. I see, I see it to be more gen, gen, general than that. Why is the fishermen general? Why is it that the great majority of the world's fisheries are overfished? 
Why is it that lobster fishermen throughout the world, not just on Easter, but lobster fishermen on seamounts around Australia, um, overfish? Why is it that the European Union, the fishermen in the world with the most detailed scientific information about the consequences of overfishing, why is the, e why is the EU having overfished their own waters, now overfishing the waters of Africa and other countries? I don't see anything uniquely Polynesian. Yeah, there may be something about the way we think about the ocean, that it seems like an infinity that you can tap yeah. or something. Uh, here's a, a leading question from reporter Mark Hertzgard from The Nation magazine. Do you agree with Stuart Brand that climate change is so threatening to our future that we must turn to nuclear power for much of our future energy supply? <laughs> Good luck with that. I was not aware that Stuart Brand had said this, but if I had known that he would have said this, I would say, said, said yes, to, d to deal with our energy problems. Um, we need everything that is available to us, including nuclear. France today generates, I believe, 80% of its power from nuclear sources and has done it very carefully and has never had a nuclear accident. Britain now is going through one of its agonizing reappraisals of the core values about whether to bring back nuclear power. Uh, the United States had bad experiences, but the fact is that I, we get some percentage of our power today from nuclear, and our nuclear plants are all old and again get phased out. So what are we going to do when the nuclear plants get phased out, but what are we also going to do when we deplete fossil fuels? Uh, a few months ago, um, you probably know the, the report of the bipartisan commission, the National Energy Commission, that released a thoroughly practical, this is not pie in the sky, environmentalist, a thoroughly practical energy policy for the United States. Where are we going to get our energy from? And they went through all the possibilities. Some of it can come from nuclear, if done carefully, like France. And some of it can come from wind. There are some really super-duper new windmills. And some of it can come from tidal. And some of it can come from solar. And some of it can come from better use of coal. Da, 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 da. So yes, I agree with, agree with Stuart Brand on that, as well as I think all other matters. I, I, <laughs> I did not expect that answer. Mark, deal with it. <laughs> Okay, here's a question from Mike Buck. Where's Mike Buck? Way back there. Uh, and this will be the last question, because uh, you'll see why. Are there plans to make Collapse into a documentary to reach a, reach a broader audience? Interesting question. Uh, some of you may know that Guns, Germs, and Steel, my previous book, has been made into a documentary, which is now showing. In fact, the first episode um, aired on PBS this past Monday, um, and if you like that first episode, the next two episodes are even better. Um, this coming Monday, you'll see on, on PBS 10, 10 p.m. or 9 p.m., check your local listings, you'll see on PBS uh, the confrontation between Europe and the New World, and particular recreation of the Battle of Marca, where National Geographic and Lion TV got 1,000 Quechua Indians, including a great guy to play Atahualpa, and magnified them by computer to 80,000 to restage the Battle of Marca. So that's next Monday. And the following week, Monday the, the what is it, Monday the 25th, uh, will be the future, a program on Africa, which you find a gut-wrenching program. So, 
I and those involved in the Guns, German Steel television program have been waiting to see how the GGS television program would fare with the public um, before getting concrete about the possibility of a TV series on collapse. I hope there will be a TV series on collapse, and I would add that any of you here with about $3 million to spare <laughs> who would like to do, who would like to get an environmental message to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world, lots more people watch TV program, programs than read Jared Diamond's book. And the GGS program cost four and a half million, of which one and a half million was generated internally, so it cost about three million of grants. If any of you would like to put up three million, then you can short circuit what otherwise would be an agonizing search for money, and you can launch a TV <laughs> series of collapse right away. And that is a wonderful note on which to end. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs>